The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Church that gets together and learns the word, but to try to actually have an impact in our community for the gospel. And one of the ways we've done that for years now is through meals at holiday season. And last year, um, over 200 families in the Valley got meals during the holidays because of the generosity of the people here at Heritage. So I want to encourage you guys, we're going to ramp that back up again. And um, so what's going to happen now is, first of all, if you know someone that would be really blessed by a meal this uh, Thanksgiving, we would love to get some contact information from you. So you can stop by the Connect table out there and fill out a form, and we'll make sure that they get taken care of. And then also, if you would like to be a part of it in 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 terms of like cash donations towards the food and things like that, from now until November 20th, um, any Sunday, you can just put a, a check in the uh, basket as it goes by, and in the memo, just put down that it's for the meals um, outreach this holiday season, and we'll make sure that that gets taken care of. The meals go to families that we know or that we find out about through you, but also we take care of families like children and the foster care families that are taking care of kids that are in the system here around us. So it's a really cool outreach that we're a part of there. Um, other than that, there's all sorts of other things going on. Checking that purple or pink or whatever color that is uh, piece of paper that came in or stop by and meet the awesome people at the connect table. They would love to talk to you. Um, I'm not teaching today. I get the opportunity to introduce or reintroduce to you um, a good friend of ours here at Heritage, um, Jeff Gilbert. Some of you guys know his work because he was the drummer in Cutlass for many years. Um, man, it was about a year ago now, somewhere around that time, that um, Jeff, Mike Gergen, and myself, we met downtown, got a taco from Jose's Taco Cart. You guys ever had that before? It's legit, right, Taco? Jose's Taco Cart. So we, we met downtown, got something to eat, and we were just talking, catching up. Man, Jeff, what are you doing right now? And he started talking about this thing that he had gotten mixed up in called Save the Storks. And it's just an incredible gospel-centered outreach that's a, a mobile ultrasound unit that goes and literally they'll park right across the street from abortion clinics. Um, and it's so different. It, instead of across the street with signs and shame and all this kind of stuff, it's coming in and inviting these girls in. And he's going to tell you more and more about the success that they've had and all that. But he, he was telling me about that about a year ago. And I remember, man, that would be awesome. We should do that. 250 grand, that's going to take a while. But, um, man, let's talk to some people and see what happens. And uh, I just want to encourage and bless you guys, man. Um, Heritage definitely led the charge in getting that thing um, up and going. And they broke, save the storks, or uh, we in the Valley, broke their records for funding and purchase and all that stuff for the Save the Storks van. They've never had one come through like that before. That was amazing. And uh, so as you guys know, you probably saw it when you're coming in, the bus is here today. Um, it's kind of our baby, Cindy at the Resource Center, um, because we were the ones that sort of approached her and said, hey, have you talked to Jeff about this stuff? She calls me the godfather, and I kind of like that, I won't lie. Um, I, I'm, I'm working on my, uh, my accent so I can say, don't ask me about my business, but I don't have it right yet, so we'll work on that. And that's not a good movie. Anyway, um... <laughs> Anyway, um, so it's outside today. So if you haven't had a chance to see it when you come out, we put it under the cover. You won't get rained on, but I encourage you, man, go see what the Lord has done and then pray over this thing, man. It's just going to, um, we're, we're going to take this thing to Ashland, park it across the street from the abortion clinic, and they're going to love us down there, right? Um, maybe not, but we're going to love them. Amen. 
That's what we're going to do. Amen. But anyway, so Jeff is in town. Um, He was speaking this week at the Pregnancy Center's um, uh, annual fundraising banquet, which was an incredible success. Um, uh, They brought in $109,000 for the local resource center here this week, which is more by 25 grand than they've ever brought in before. So that was really, really awesome. Yeah. And uh, so we've asked Jeff to come and open up the word for us and talk about um, John chapter 8 and its impact in his life and how they're using this approach to ministry um, really all throughout the country just to celebrate this amazing thing that God's doing. So would you guys uh, give a warm welcome to our boy, Jeff Gilbert? Come here. Love you, dude. Ah. Heritage, so good to be back. How are you guys? How are you? I can't hear you. I'm kind of deaf. I played drums for 12 years, and I, I need to hear you, okay? This is, this is a conversation we're having, so don't be too white, all right? You can be a little noisy with me, all right? It's okay. So if you're hearing something, you're like, I like that. You can go, I like that, okay? Do you like that? Good, cool. So Sometimes people from time to time will ask me, you know, hey, give me a really good road story from, from when you're in the band. It's been a while since I've been in the band, but still there's, there's all kinds of crazy stories when, when you tour full time and see all kinds of crazy stuff. One of my favorite stories that I don't get to tell very often, but now that I have the mic and you don't, you're going to have to listen to it, is uh, Santa Monica, California, 2007, June, hot summer night. Me and my buddy Nick, who had just become the new guitar player of Cutlass, we were writing some new songs, and we wanted to demo them in a studio, and his buddy Jeremy, he uh, worked at a studio in Santa Monica, totally in the hood of Santa Monica, and it was this little post-production audio studio where uh, they, they did like uh, MTV television shows and stuff like that, the audio for it. So it's a really small space, probably about as big as that drum cage, whatever you want to call that. So we put a drum kit in there. It's late at night, probably 10 o'clock when we move into it. And we get all set up, we get all mic'd up, and we're rocking out, and we're having fun, and it's all crazy. And get about, you know, 2 a.m., we're like, okay, we got to pack it up, we got to get out of here. So we pull the cars back up against the, the front of the area. Well, Nick's cousin was along with us, and he's super into techno music, like heavily electronic music. And he likes to listen to it really loud. And so he decides at the middle of the night, 3 a.m., in Santa Monica, in the hood, he decides that he wants to be cranking techno music. And we're like, whatever. So... We're getting all our stuff packed up. The guys are out front. And when you're in the studio, there's the front lobby. And then there's this hallway, this like narrow hallway. And then there's this big opening area. And there's a kitchenette in there. And there's all this food. And when you're like a young, single, broke musician, you want free food. And especially when you're young and single, Easy Mac is like the food of choice. And I find a whole basket full of Easy Mac. And I'm like, yes. So I start whipping up some Easy Mac. While I'm doing that, the music stops, and all of a sudden, I hear, get your hands up. I'm all, oh, gosh, guys, it's late. Like, don't be dumb. You know, it's stupid. So I finish making my food, and I, I grab my drumstick bag, and I have it under my arm, and I'm walking out. And one other thing about me that you guys need to know is I definitely went through this phase where I really loved, like, the Chicano style, like, lowrider Cadillacs and, like, big Dickies. I had a big mohawk and a flannel all buttoned up to my neck. I thought I was cool whatever, early 20s, we, we all had it. So the thing is, you guys, is if you know me, if, if I grew up with you, which I've seen a lot of old friends and family in here, is I, I don't like getting in trouble. I'm not, I'm not a troublemaker. I'm a peacemaker. That's, I mean, it even means that. And so, like, I got a uh, speeding ticket when I was 17, and I cried, okay? It's like, 
I don't like getting in trouble. So I look kind of like a troublemaker being the way I dressed and I kind of am associated in that kind of scene because the way I look, my appearance. So I get my food, I'm walking down the hallway and all of a sudden around the corner are two SWAT team officers with their Glock 9s pointed right at my face. And I freeze and I'm like, oh my, and I didn't, I'm not going to tell you what I said after that. And, I, and they're, we're all just kind of like standing there like, what is going on? And so they kind of look at what I look like and then they look at what I'm holding and I promise you, God be my witness, the officer holding a gun at my face goes, drop the mac and cheese. <laughs> True story. And I kind of, I'm like, drop the mac and cheese. What? I'm like, it's cool, man. It's cool. It's not a bomb. And I put it down. <laughs> and they take my stuff. They handcuff me. They take me outside. And there's Nick, Jeremy, and Graham, who are all totally wimpy like me, totally not troublemakers. They're face down in the gutter, handcuffed. And there's a freaking paddy wagon SWAT vehicle with 12 more police officers. Half of them had, like, AR machine guns. And I'm like, what is going on? We're just making some music and, you know, making some Easy Mac. Why in the world are they all of a sudden, you know, freaking out? So what happened was, is a couple weeks before, there was a big gang robbery in the same neighborhood in the same area and a studio was broken into and they were, they were armed, you know, uh, burglarizing the studio and there was a big shootout with the police there and so the police came back like guns blazing thinking that we're those guys again. So we were accused by the appearance of what we were up to. They basically said, we're going to drag these guys out of here and they're guilty until we discover that they're actually innocent. So the same kind of situation happened in John chapter 8. But the difference of the situation in John chapter 8 is the woman who was caught in adultery was actually caught in adultery. It wasn't just the fact that she looked like she was an adulterous person. It's not that they you know, potentially thought she could be and they just wanted to ransack the situation. Instead, they made sure they caught her in the physical act of adultery. So let's take it from verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back at, at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put fear, I'm sorry, they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, to stone her. What do you say? Now pause here. One thing that I get to do that I think is such a blast is I get to create campaigns for different organizations like Jeff mentioned, Save the Storks. Another organization I, I've served is an organization called Food for the Hungry and I was actually just in Rwanda uh, in March as one of the guys from uh, One Direction and we made a whole uh, documentary out of our journey and I love making film and so that kind of, uh, you know, perspective on making film and being able to have like this multi-sensory impact of storytelling. Let's go there right now with, let's look at what was going on. Jesus was in the temple. His ministry is exploding. The crowds are around. He's probably in the middle of some epic, you know, sermon, just dropping the mic like crazy. And then all of a sudden you hear this frantic woman 
being drug in, probably naked, maybe some sort of blanket or sheet around her, perhaps, maybe even not. She's screaming and crying and frantic, and then you hear all this shouting of men, and then you hear a bunch of mumbling and stuttering in the crowd. And so Jesus is like, oh gosh, what now? What are the Pharisees up to now? And so here we are. She gets drugged to the front. She's frazzled. She's clearly guilty. Jesus knows that. But the thing is, is I've realized that there's a lot of ink, a lot of writing, a lot of sermons on what exactly was Jesus writing in the dust. Because as we continue on, it says they were trying to trap him, Jesus, into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. So there's a lot of ink on that. I'm not really concerned with what he was writing in the dust. But what I'm thinking about is his posture. Notice his posture. He stoops down. Everybody else is facing this woman. Everybody is accusing this woman. Everybody is looking at this woman in her shame. And they're only exemplifying her shame. They're, they're, they're magnifying her shame and her guilt. But Jesus, out of all of them, he stoops down. I'm not going to look at her. I'm not going to defile her like everybody else is. But instead I'm going to write. And so then it says... They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, all right. And I even would suggest, if she's here, I would even suggest that he goes over here. Maybe he catches eyes with just somebody from the crowd. Maybe he's over here and he goes, all right. But let one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Silent. Everybody splits. I don't want you to start calling my stuff out. All I care about is that you call her stuff out, not my stuff. Leave my stuff alone. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away. And then off to verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again. Now the posture, he's standing before her. And he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. His posture to her, he waited to look upon her until she was no longer in this frequency of being shamed and accused and evil, and gross, and disgusting. I don't even want to think about what she's been doing over there. She's sick. She's gross. But Jesus goes, come here. I even could, just in my mind's eye, when I read the word, I have to imagine and envision. I can't just read it. I need to see it in my mind's eye. My Lord, Jesus, how would you receive me? What if I was drug out of my disgusting filth into a crowd, and I'm screaming, I'm freaked out. How would you receive me, Lord? And I could totally see him, even in my nakedness, I could see him. Maybe even take his cloak off or whatever, or grab one from somebody else. And he wraps me up and he grabs me by, by the shoulders, maybe even by the face. And he says, where's your accusers? And you're looking around and you're kind of wiping the tears from your face and the dirt's all over the place. And there aren't any. And neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Guys, we intend and we tend to accuse and condemn before we recognize and know somebody's story. 
How many times have you been condemned and accused? When you're facing a situation that is so deep, that is so extensive, that has taken years to unfold into what is actually happening now, and somebody just looks at you face value and goes, oh, they're just a screw up. They can't get their stuff together. They need to get back into church. They need to repent. They need to do this. They need to do that. You're just thinking of all the things that they should be doing just like you. And another part of scripture that reminds me of that, that I think is actually really hilarious, and it just makes me fall in love with Jesus even more, is in Luke chapter 9. Don't worry about turning there. I'm just going to read you. I'm going to read you from the translation of the message because I just think it really hits home with what we're talking about. So when the disciples, James and John, learned of it, they said, Master, do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? And Jesus turned on them and he said, of course not. No. No, we're not going to incinerate them. I mean, to be totally honest with you, I could even see Jesus going like, shut up. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm God. If I want that to happen, I would have already done it before you even thought of it. Before you even got out of bed this morning, I would have already had that dialed. Who do you think you are, Christian? Why would you want to incinerate somebody else because they made you mad or because they're doing something that's out of context of what you think is holy or what even the Bible says is holy? You don't know their story. You don't know what they've been through. How would your heart change and how could you serve that individual? If you were to just say, what's your story? What, what have, where have you been? Where have you come from? What got you here now? And so those are questions that have always mattered a lot to me. So I was in music for a long time. As you know, actually, my brother and I, we, we had a, a ministry here in the Rogue Valley up at Applegate leading worship on, sometimes it was Monday nights, sometimes it was Tuesday nights, sometimes it was Friday nights. But God, he, he, he turned that into something pretty cool where we were able to, you know, do the whole record deal thing and make albums and go on the road. And then a couple years after being on the road, my brother went home to continue doing that. And I went on to be in Cutlass, which was a great time. Huge, huge answer to prayer and, and a lot of dreams came true. You see, I, I never even took my SATs in high school, so I'm kind of an educational loser. Um, so music was where it was at for me for eight years. And then... I met a girl named Shannon. She rocked me. She messed everything up because I wanted to marry her. So I married her, and it was the best thing I could have ever happened to me. And a year and a half after that, we had our son Slater, who's about to turn six next month. And that year, so many things happened in my life because 2011 was the busiest year of, of Cutlass's career in ministry. And it was the most fruitful year of what we were able to do and the impact we were able to make. But I was so desiring to be home with my family. The whole frequency of my life changed when I became a father and when an infant, even a conception, came into my life. And that changed everything. But the Lord used music and He used relationships in music to position me into what I get to do now. And you're like, well, what are you doing now? I literally get to go have beverages with friends and dream up ways to love on people. Literally, whether they're beverages from a bean or beverages from a hop or whatever, we're hanging out and we're talking about, hey, how can we just love on and support our communities? How can we do things that are socially justice 
oriented where there's those that are going through difficulties who don't deserve to be in those difficulties or they don't even know how they got into those difficulties but we have innovative answers on how to help those difficulties. So three years ago I was uh, offered a position at an organization called Food for the Hungry. They work in 26 different countries around the world. They do restorative development by partnering with communities that live in the most extremely impoverished conditions that you could ever imagine. It's detrimental where these children live, where these families live. And we have the privilege of partnering with these communities with local teams. So like for example, when I was in Rwanda, it's Rwandans serving Rwandans. It's not guys that look like me going over there. It's actually, I get to just share those stories. But the beauty of it is, is we're seeing these communities pulled up out of extreme poverty by giving them the tools and education they need through the church to be able to do that. So they're the ones getting it done. We're teaching them to fish instead of giving them a fish. And last year alone, we saw 79 communities around the world pulled out of extreme poverty. Well, through that, God was able to just launch me into all kinds of crazy things. And again, it's just getting coffee with people. I'd get coffee with the guy who managed the newsboys. Next thing we know, newsboys are out there on the road talking about food for the hungry. Next thing we know, 10,000 kids got sponsored in one tour. And in three years, we've been able to see 70,000 people champion children with over $200 million in, in resources raised and finances raised in order to get that work accomplished. Well, as I was doing that, the reason I was doing that was because God called me out of my band. He said, you got to give it all up. Your son is where you want to be. Your wife is where you want to be. Go be there. And I remember sitting in my living room in the middle of the night and men who lead your homes, who, who are maybe even perhaps the, the sole you know, income earner of your home, the stress and pressure of making sure that you're providing for your family is pretty heavy for a guy. And so as I'm in my living room, I just remember having my face buried in my hands going, God, what are you going to do? Because I know I'm not supposed to be playing music anymore. And I very rarely share this story with you. So please feel very privileged right now, okay? But I remember just feeling something and I, I look up and I just see these blazing eyes right in front of me. Jesus himself manifested in my living room. Been a Christian my entire life and in ministry my whole life. And those are stories that I thought, no, you can only be like in war-torn circumstances. You got to be in like the gnarliest areas in order for something like that to happen. I'm in my living room in Santa Ana, California. And all I knew was that Jesus said, with his eyes, holding my face, said, you are to fight for the greatness of family. That is what I'm calling you into. And so with Food for the Hungry doing what they're doing, I'm like, man, we're fighting for families all around the world. This is epic. We're championing children. We're giving people the opportunity to do what they never thought they'd be able to do. It's epic. Awesome. Praise God. Cool. I get to do it with my friends. Awesome. But the question that kept, you know, stirring in my heart and people that would ask me while I was on the road talking about these things, they go, Jeff, what about the most vulnerable kids right here in our own country? How, what, what are we doing for them? And my answer is always, well, you know, the, the most vulnerable kids in our country, they, we still have resources for them. We're able to meet their immediate needs. We have some of the cleanest water in the world accessible anywhere in our nation. We, we have accessible, uh, you know, education and housing and food. I mean, we have our immediate needs met. But then I met this dude named Joe, this fire little redhead. This was three and a half years ago. And he's like, dude, I'm starting this thing called Save the Storks. And 
we're building out these mobile medical, you know, buses out of Mercedes, and they're epic, and we're just launching our first one, I really want you to be a part of it. I'd love for you to be able to support us the way that you're working with Food for the Hungry. I'm like, cool, man. I've always had a pro-life stance, but I've never known how to express myself in that way, because I just feel like it most of the time, most of the time, the pro-life narrative can be very isolating for somebody who has been through the heartache and turmoil of an abortion. My heart is more for the one who is either going through it or who has been through it. Where can we, where can we champion her? Where, where can we serve her? Where can we steward her heart? Because all she knows is that the church is calling her a murderer. We understand what the sin is. Don't get me wrong. I'm not justifying the sin of it. But I really believe that if we were to stoop down into a position of saying, I am not going to look at your shame even though you're consist- clearly in shame. I'm going to honor and respect your situation and I want to get to know who you are and then I want to encourage you to go and sin no more. Be free. Do not live in guilt and shame. And so as I'm getting to know Joe, it took over about a year to completely, undeniably fall in love with the work they're doing. And so the first bus that they launched in 2011, 394 women chose life in front of an abortion clinic in Hoboken, New Jersey. The busiest abortion clinic in all of New Jersey. 394 chose life. Yeah, please. And the crazy thing about that is that that abortion clinic is no longer in business because we intercepted so much of the clientele they can't function. Now, this is what happened. We didn't close down the abortion clinic by politicking, by megaphoning, by picketing. Instead, we were innovative enough to create a resource and an education model through relationship to reframe the narrative of women's health care in that neighborhood. And that neighborhood fell in love with that pregnancy center and that stork bus rather than going to that abortion clinic. Word spread, people came to us instead of them. And through that whole time, too, we were able to love on and care for the abortion clinic staff, which I know many of them actually did get saved that year as well. And so that was a couple years ago. I joined on board about two and a half years ago. I think around the time I was here in September of last year, we had about 15, maybe 16 buses launched. We talked about Medford. We talked about Cindy and her team at the Medford Pregnancy Center. I got to reconnect with Cindy. I... I've known the, the Brights for, for years, since high school, and didn't even know that she was the director over there. I had just learned what a pregnancy center was just three years ago. I didn't even know what a pregnancy center was. I've been in ministry my whole life, and I didn't know what a pregnancy center was. And so she said, Jeff, we actually had a stork bus come through Medford. I'm like, well, Jeff and I just went and got tacos, and we want you to have a stork bus in Medford. She goes, well, let's figure it out. I said, cool. So I came and I shared the vision at Heritage. God moved. Then she went and had her banquet last year. God moved even more because somebody came to her the next day and said, hey, we love this stork bus thing. We're going to cut you a $125,000 check right now. Crazy, right? But here's the deal. They said, but you can't cash it until you raise $125,000. So this is a matching grant. And Jeff got many other churches involved. You all got involved. And from, what was it, nine months, Cindy? Yeah. 
Nine months and 17 days. The stork bus is right out there, guys. You can clap. <laughs> so, that's bus number 21. And we actually launched bus number 22 in Iowa. And we have 23 more buses in contract to be built in, in some sort of production or, or whatever. The reason I'm so excited about this, you guys, is because the bus in Jersey, it set a precedence for the rest of Save the Storks. And now we're seeing an average of 360 decisions for life in front of abortion clinics and on university campuses per bus per year. 360. We, we have just gotten started and nearly 3,000 children are living today. 3,000 moms were championed today because the whole process, and the reason I love Cindy and her work so much is because she's not going in saying, you're a murderer, you're despicable, you're an adulterer, you're a slut, you're this, you're that. What she's saying is, is, hi, honey, how can I help you? Let me sit you down. Let me show you your options. If you're considering abortion, let me show you what an abortion is. Let me let you know what could happen after an abortion and what you might be going through. Which might I add, she's still there for them even if they do follow through with an abortion. We hope and pray that they will definitely get into post-abortive counseling, no doubt. But what I'm really desiring to share with you right now is one in three women in our nation will go through the heartache of an abortion in her life. 3,000 abortions happen every day in our country. Yet statistically, 84% of women who have been through the heartache abortion did not know that they had any other option. They were not given access to that education and they were not given access to resources. So friends, don't put your time and energy in trying to defund Planned Parenthood. Just create something better than Planned Parenthood. And that's what Cindy has done. And that's what we get a champion as a church, as a fellowship, and even as a nation. It's crazy what happens when you go and get some tacos with a buddy. It's crazy. And all I can say is like, I am so honored to be here in a part of Heritage as an extended family member just to be able to celebrate with you what God's doing and what God's doing throughout the nation. You see, Cindy's process, what she's doing at, at the Pregnancy Center is a completely reformed and reimagined pro-life movement that I like to call the gospel-driven pro-life movement. Because that's what we've been missing. The thing is, is if you got your notes out, if you want to write something down, then I would say this. We are not supposed to hurt. We are supposed to heal. Amen? We are not supposed to torch. We are supposed to touch. Amen? Seriously. We are supposed to champion, not to chastise. Jesus does not reject, he restores. Amen? So, I'm going to read another story from the Bible, but it's not just any Bible. No, it's not the Book of Mormon. It's my kid's, <laughs> my kid's story Bible. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And my friend gave it to me about a year ago. And I think it's safe to say that this Bible is my Bible college. It is changed my life. Not only that I get to read the Bible to my children, but the way 
that it is translated for children makes it for me so applicable. <laughs> Remember, I never took my SATs. But I'm going to read to you a story that is called A Little Girl and a Poor Frail Lady. It's taken from the story from Luke 8. <clears throat> there was once a little girl who didn't get out of bed one morning, or the next, or the next. In fact, she didn't get out of bed for a whole month. She was very sick, and no one knew how to make her better. So Jairus was her daddy, and he loved her. One day, he was sitting by her bed, holding her hand, just wishing there was something he could do. I know, he said. He jumped up to his feet, put on his coat, kissed his daughter, ran down the step, step, steps, past the servants, out of the house, through the gates along the road, and into the town, up the step, step, steps, and into the temple. He fought his way through all the people until at last he found who he was looking for. Jesus, he said, falling at Jesus' feet. My daughter, he pleaded. Please. But he didn't need to beg because before he'd even finished speaking, Jesus reached out his hand, helped him up. I'll come at once. Jesus said. Jairus' eyes filled with tears. Jesus was coming. It would be all right. In those days, of course, they didn't have ambulances, so they had to go by foot, and Jesus' helpers knew that he would heal the sick girl, but they must hurry. If Jesus didn't get there soon, it would be too late. But everyone was in the way, hustling and bustling, jostling and pressing, pushing and shoving, squishing and squashing. The disciples ran ahead, forcing back the crowd. Suddenly, Jesus stopped. His friends looked back. What was he doing? Who touched me? Jesus asked because he felt power go out of him. Me, said a frail lady, looking down at the ground because she was ashamed. The poor lady had been sick for 12 years, and she had to get well. She knew if she only touched Jesus' coat, she would be healed. So she touched his coat, and instantly she was well. We don't have time, Jesus' friends said. But Jesus always had time. He reached out his hands and he gently lifted her head. He looked into her eyes and smiled. You believed, he said, wiping a tear from her eye. And now you are well. Just then, Jairus' servant rushed up to Jairus. It's too late, he said breathlessly. Your daughter is dead. Jesus turned to Jairus. It's not too late, Jesus said. Trust me. At Jairus' house, everyone was crying, but Jesus said, I'm going to wake her up. Everyone laughed at him because they knew she was dead. But Jesus walked into the little girl's bedroom, and there, lying in the corner, in the shadows, was this still little figure. Jesus sat on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and he gently brought the little girl back to life the little girl woke up she rubbed her eyes as if she just had a good night's sleep and left out of bed jesus threw open the shutters and sunlight flooded the dark room hungry jesus asked she nodded jesus called to her family bring the little girl some breakfast jesus helped and healed many people like this he made blind people see he made deaf people hear he made lame people walk. Jesus was making the sad things come untrue. He was mending God's broken world. Praise God. Seriously. I get to read that to my children, the truth of the gospel. Jesus 
was making the sad things of the world come untrue. Come on. Can I get an amen for that? Fellowship, what we saw Jesus do in that story, there's two things that happened. It was to an old woman and to a young girl. Jesus restored them. They were restored. But think about it. The old woman, she was bleeding. We all know the story. Jesus healed her uterus. He healed her womb. And the child, she died. He restored her life. Jesus is one to restore what is bleeding and broken. He makes the sad things of the world come untrue. Friends, I'm, I'm sad about the position that our country is in right now concerning abortion. And my heart breaks for you who have been through that heartache yourself. But may I suggest to you that Jesus wants to reach down into death and pull you out of that guilt and shame. May I suggest to you that if you are ever involved in a conversation where you're put in a position to talk about your position on pro-choice or pro-life or whatever, your position is, who am I to accuse? But I know that Jesus can reach out into death and to restore what was taken. And that is what we're seeing God do. Now, I get to truly be just a messenger for things like Save the Storks. It is not an agenda for me. It is not an occupation for me. It is just me saying I care deeply about equipping and resourcing the church. And another takeaway that the Lord just literally revealed to me was Jesus stopped and asked who touched him because he recognized power had left him. There was power in him and some of it was taken. Some of it was used. It was resourced into the healing of somebody else. God has given you the power to be able to spend in any way that you want. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to consider, Lord, how would you want me to engage in this narrative? How can I frame a gospel-driven pro-life message, not just here in my church, in this gym, not just at my dinner table with my family, but with my community how can I champion Cindy Bright and her epic team at the Pregnancy Center? How can we make sure that when they go out at the front of the battle in Ashland, Oregon, that God would move mountains where they could build relationships with a very volatile abortion clinic? They're mean over there, guys. They're mean. And it's hard to love mean people. But if anybody can do it, it's Cindy and her crew. That girl can melt any heart, I swear to you. But I'm going to ask Sam to come back right now and lead us in some worship. And I'm going, to, I'm going to open it up an opportunity in this way. When I preach, it's a conversation. I'm not talking at you. 
it's because I've had conversations all over the nation. Josh McGrath, Pregnancy Center Director in Canton, New York. Uh, Deborah Toos, Huntington Beach, California. Uh, Rosie Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, Angela Simpson, uh, the Gulf in Florida. There's all over the place. There's all these different people and they're all looking at the same thing. They're looking at going. We don't want to condemn anybody for what they're going through, but instead we want to love on, champion, and resource those who are in the middle of a really freaky circumstance and they don't know what to do. Four out of five women who are boarding stork buses are choosing life right now. Four out of five. And I'm certainly praying that we can get it up to five out of five. But we can't do it without you. And it's so imperative that we continue this narrative of a gospel-driven pro-life message. We cannot rely on some politician who is saying whatever they can to get into office to make it happen for us. It's not about who you vote for. I promise you that. It's not. Don't put your hope in a man. Put your hope in Jesus. Look at how he handles these situations and just simply base it off of that. You can't go wrong. So I'm going to have some ushers come around and I'm going to ask you to do this. I have this envelope and inside the envelope is a story that I would love for you to read. If the ushers are here, I'd love for you guys to, to be able to pass those, those packets out right now. So if you guys want to get involved with Save the Stories, maybe you already have, praise God, that's rad. But if you have not been invited into it yet, if you don't know what it is, if this is the first time hearing about it, we are engaging in a way for you to be able to sponsor a stork just as you would sponsor a child. By sponsoring a stork, you're saving at least one baby and her mom from heartache of abortion per year. And I have an envelope. I just want you to raise your hand if you want to see it. You're not making a commitment right now by raising your hand. But raise your hand nice and high right now if you want to read this story of a gal named Valerie who boarded the stork bus in New Jersey. And not only was it the worst possible time of her life to get pregnant, she already had a child. She was just now getting back on her feet. She gets pregnant. She goes and makes an appointment at the local abortion clinic. The first surprise is that there's a blue stork bus there. She's invited gently by Rosie, the sonographer and counselor there in, in Hoboken. She sits down. She, she receives a free ultrasound, which is actually an $800 procedure if you're not insured. She gets that for free. Her second surprise is that not only does she know that she's pregnant, but she's pregnant with twins. She's 15 weeks along, and she was rolling in to abort her babies. When she saw that image, that ultrasound image on that screen, when she heard the heartbeat of that child, those children, she knew right then and there that she could not follow through with that procedure, but she was still scared. She still didn't know how she was going to afford it. She still didn't know how she was going to do it. But then when Rosie was able to say, Valerie, if you need financial help, we will take care of the car seats, the diapers, the formula, the clothes. Just continue to come to us. Continue to get counseling from us. And we'll provide that for you for up to two years after your babies are born. Get you plugged into a church. You're going to have a community who's going to throw you a baby shower. We're going to shame you. We're going to celebrate you. We're not going to torture you. We're going to touch you. Valerie gave birth to two beautiful girls who are alive and well because we simply wanted to help. We simply wanted her to touch your cloak 
yeah, you felt a little bit come out of it, didn't you? 30 bucks a month, you feel that. But man, I would way rather give it to Valerie than give it to Starbucks. I promise you, I'm not pressuring you in anything right now. God might be totally, totally telling you to do something else with your time and energy. But with the idea of being able to double our fleet, we can't do it without you. And you get to be a shareholder in every single one of those buses that are launched, including Cindy's. And you get to be a shareholder in every single life that is championed. So one day when we get to heaven, I love this image. I cannot wait to celebrate and have a reunion with so many kids who will come up and say, hey, we never met, but you went and had tacos with a guy named Jeff, and Jeff went and had tacos with a bunch of pastors in his congregation, and because of it, you guys championed Cindy, who championed my mom, who was caught in a horrible situation, but because of you and everybody else that you connected with, I got to have a life, and not only did I get to have a life, I got to know Jesus at Heritage Christian Fellowship. Not only did I get to know Jesus, but there was people that mentored me and discipled me and loved me. And I got to go up and I got to be an influencer and a leader. And I got to see people come to know Jesus as well. And all of these people are stoked to party with you because you just had a conversation. Because you're able to give a couple bucks toward a cause. And all of it is going to building out this innovative movement. So... Let's worship right now. Let's come to our King. Let's come to our Lord and say, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Do you want me to be a store sponsor for 30 bucks a month and, and to be a residual giver of this awesome ministry? Or do you want me to go find Cindy right now and let her know that I'm down for whatever they need? I'll just figure it out. Or do you want to just make sure that you understand this narrative of quit shaming people? Don't do that anymore, guys. And the only reason I can say that to you is because I am working on it myself. Every day I'm put in a position of whether or not I'm going to judge somebody for their appearance or their situation. So this is a sermon for me just as much as it is for you. I hope you understand that. So as we worship, consider these things. Fill out that card with joy. Fill out that card with knowing that it is safe and secure and that nobody's going to get a hold of it. <laughs> and know that because of you, lives are going to be saved. So pray right now. Ask the Lord, God, how do you want me to respond?
too many causes that we would give an entire service over to, but, but this is one here at Heritage that we feel really strongly about. And uh, I, I mean, I, I'm with Jeff for, for so long. I've always, always been pro-life, 
but um, it's like suddenly there's a pro-life movement that I feel like I can fit with, you know what I mean? That I feel like the gospel fits with. And I want to encourage you guys, this is why this is big, a big deal. I actually got this message from one of our pastors during the service. Hey, in between services, I got a chance to talk and pray with a woman from the church who's still grieving from an abortion she had early in life. It stayed hidden all this time because she knew the religious community heavily condemned her. It was with tears she shared her shame and felt like God was prompting her this morning to bring it to light. And we got to talk through the gospel and the reality of her forgiveness. There's, there's more. Yeah. Amen. There, there's more than her. You're in this room too. And for so long, the church has been known by all the things that it's against. And now we have opportunities like this to talk about what we're for. Like we're for you. We're for these women. We're for these babies because Jesus is for them. And we do it because he saw our shame, whether it was in an abortion clinic or not. He saw our shame. And he came and he humbled himself and he saved us. And so how can we not? Amen. So let's just pray for Jeff in this mission. God, we just thank you so much for what you're doing. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this, this gospel-centered way that we can now um, just minister to what's been a really touchy, difficult subject for a long time. And I'm just asking God for your blessing, Lord. Would, would you bless Jeff, Lord, in the work that he's doing, Lord, the passion that you've given him for these moms and these babies, Lord. I pray, Lord, you would use him mightily. Lord, he may not pound drums anymore, but may he pound on the enemy who wants to destroy lives. Lord, may, may he see victory. May you expand his territory. And Lord, for here, that bus sitting outside right now, God, I pray that that would be a mobile gospel unit that will change this valley, Lord. Yes. I pray, Lord, for that abortion clinic in Ashland, Lord. I, I, I pray that the clock is ticking now on its opening day. That, Lord, the, the day will come soon where those doors are shut. Lord, I pray that the babies that are saved would grow to be champions of your gospel. The moms that are saved, Lord, would be saved into your kingdom. And we just pray, God, that you would be glorified. Lord, help us, Lord, to be those type of people who instead of condemning and pointing fingers, Lord, we're pointing our finger to you and leading people to you, Jesus. Give us that heart, I pray. And so, Lord, until that day that we see you face to face, Lord, may you empower, equip, and use us in that end. Lord, we thank you. I pray you bless everyone as they leave. It's not just abortion, Lord. There's people hurting in so many areas. And may we carry that same posture and grace as we go out of these doors. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said.